Section twenty three of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Elizabeth of England, Part Two. Her effort henceforth was to recover that popularity which was the object of her lifelong pursuit. She became very grave and studious, and devoted herself, among other things, to the theological questions which were then generally agitated. To the learned William Grindle succeeded the learned Roger Ascombe as her tutor. He had before written to her governess in these curious words after the style of the time. Gentle Mrs. Ashley, would God my wit wist what words would express the thanks you have deserved of all true English hearts, for that noble imp, Elizabeth, by your labour and wisdom now flourishing in all goodly godliness now he undertook to perfect her in the classics as to her personal decoration at this time he writes in a latin letter to a friend that quote, she greatly prefers a simple elegance to show and splendour so despising the outward adorning of plaiting of the hair and wearing of gold that in the whole manner of her life she rather resembles hippolyta than phedra Little did the good man imagine that at her death her wardrobe would contain three thousand costly dresses and eighty wigs of various colours. Her household expenses were already on a grand scale befitting the blood royal. Large sums were paid to musicians, theatrical companies, and for her servants' velvet liveries and for her stock of choice wines prize oxen for her table and walnut furniture for her palace but she affected extreme simplicity of dress knowing that her youthful charms were best unadorned and desiring to ingratiate herself with a triumphant protestant party who opposed the claims of her sister mary a catholic on the 6th of July, 1553, King Edward died of consumption, sixteen years of age, Elizabeth being twenty and Mary thirty-six. Somerset had met the fate of his brother and had been superseded by Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, who had persecuted Mary on account of her faith and, when Edward's health failed and Mary was likely to assume the sceptre, was alarmed at the ruin ready to fall on his head. He resolved both to save and further advance himself by a bold step. The Lady Jane Grey, sixteen years old and of marvellous learning, beauty and loveliness of character, was, like Mary Queen of Scots, a granddaughter of a sister of Henry the Eighth, the father of Mary, Elizabeth and Edward. By Henry's will, she was next heir to the crown after his own children. Dudley therefore effected a marriage between Jane Grey and a handsome promising son of his own, 
then appealing to the religious convictions of the dying edward procured his legacy of the crown to her and concealed his death for a while in order to get the sisters into his power in this he failed but forthwith prevailed on jane grey against her will to be crowned she acted the part of queen but nine days dudley's forces did not rally in sufficient strength the nation apparently from a sturdy sense of honesty flocked to the standard of mary who soon entered london in triumph the duke with many adherents of the quasi-queen suffered under the axe and three months afterward poor lady jane and her young husband met the same fate in that tower of london which still stands a mute and sullen witness to the heroic death of many noble victims elizabeth's conduct during these exciting events was marked by her rare caution and sagacity when deceitfully summoned to edward's bedside by dudley she remained at home being warned by friends perhaps and even feigned illness as it is asserted that she might not be mixed up with dudley's scheme while on the other hand mary was nearly entrapped before this sickness she gave the conspirators a shrewd and brave excuse for not signing away her title to the throne namely that she had none during the life of her elder sister her defenceless situation and the seeming success of lady jane's party evinced her courage in this and when mary victoriously advanced towards london elizabeth forgot her illness and hastened to meet and pay homage to her sister with an armed retinue of two thousand horsemen whose leaders were dressed in green faced with velvet satin and taffeta learning that mary had already dismissed her useless army she next day met her with an unarmed cavalcade of a thousand persons many of whom were ladies of rank they were kindly received and when the sisters entered the city they rode side by side on horseback mary's small faded form and reserved demeanour poorly contrasting with the fresh youthfulness tall erect person graceful airs and carefully shown delicate hands of elizabeth who then as ever craved applause and made the most of her attractions mary though styled the bloody was an unostentatious sincere woman of excellent intentions her mixture of spanish and tudor blood gave her much latent pride and resolution and she was embittered by her mother's and her own wrongs but her heart was susceptible of the tenderest affection she was generous to her sister under trying circumstances and would have been humane in her administration but for her intolerant creed the sanguinary zeal of her advisers the dangers of her position and the spirit of the age unfortunately differences soon sprang up between her and elizabeth and were fomented by the friends and ambition of each or by the enemies of both the younger sister was the hope and boast of the protestant party 
and for the sake of their plaudits as well as in consequence of her own education, she refused the Queen's summons to attend Romish Mass, and resisted all her persuasions and threats, until, finding that she was endangering her safety and prospects, she sought an interview with Mary, threw herself at her feet, and expressed a willingness to be convinced of her errors, if they were such. In various ways she so pursued a double course that the Queen for a while gave her the place of highest honour on all occasions. In the grand pageant of the coronation, Elizabeth wore a French dress of white and silver tissue, and rode in a chariot drawn by six horses, trapped also with gold and silver, which followed immediately after the gold-canopied litter in which the sovereign was born. But when Parliament passed an act which so affirmed the legitimacy of Mary as unavoidably to imply the contrary concerning herself, she resented it by an effort to withdraw from court. At this juncture the difficulties beset her which formed the third and greatest peril of her early career. Nothing but extraordinary care and good fortune saved her from the whirlpool of dangers into which she was now drawn. Her rash friends were her worst enemies. At the false instigation of her mortal foes, they formed a plot, known as Wyatt's Rebellion, by which they hoped to enthrone Elizabeth, stop the Catholic schemes of Mary, and prevent her proposed marriage with Philip of Spain. Courtney, Earl of Devonshire, a prepossessing yet weak man, and kinsman of the sisters, had been rejected as suitor to Mary, and was now a leader in the plot, and resolved to gain Elizabeth. The King of France was busily seeking, by insincere offers of aid, to promote the conspiracy, and inflame both parties in England against each other, in order that he might set his daughter-in-law, Mary of Scotland, another claimant, on the English throne. The Emperor Charles V of Spain was a still more deadly enemy of Elizabeth, because her pretensions endangered the plans for his son Philip, and because her mother had supplanted Catherine of Aragon in the days of King Henry. Thus was the future Virgin Queen beset by various powerful foes, and by mistaken supporters who vainly tried every means to involve her in the plot. Rumours of it reached Mary, who was persuaded to require Elizabeth's acceptance of the Prince of Piedmont, that the mouths of the Protestants might thus be shut in regard to her own alliance with Philip the undaunted girl steadily resisted this, even in the face of not improbable death by the axe, for she was already accused and suspected, and her retirement from court, to avoid indignities and vexations, was construed against her loyalty. Letters from the rebels and the French to her were intercepted, and the odium of these unsought tamperings fell on her. The King of France offered her unlimited assistance, or, if she preferred, engaged to give her a refuge in his dominions. 
a refuge which would have proved a virtual imprisonment for life. At last the whole plot was disclosed to the royal council. In four days after, Wyatt, a knight in the southeastern part of England, raised the banner of revolt and marched with four thousand men towards London. He was suffered to enter the city, and finding no expected aid, he was surrounded and yielded himself up in despair. The other leaders, in various parts of the kingdom, failed to support his movement, and were one after another arrested, among them Lady Jane Grey's father, who, in common with her and sixty of the conspirators, was speedily executed. It was a critical time for Elizabeth. The streets of London were hideous with heads of victims exposed to the populace, and the tower flowed with blood. She was summoned to the court to appear before avenging powers, and with the fate of her mother and many of her friends in vivid recollection. She delayed on the score of sickness, which, whether the result of agitation of mind or merely physical causes, was not feigned entirely, though doubtless she made the most of it in order to gain time. At length she was brought to the city. As she entered it, her lofty spirit rose superior to her bodily weakness and the terrific scenes around her. Gibbets were to be seen everywhere, and that morning the Lady Jane's father had perished, following to the block his lately sacrificed and lovely daughter. But Elizabeth ordered her litter to be uncovered, and gazed with scornful dignity on the crowd that pitied but dared not rescue her. She was dressed in white, emblematic of her innocence, and a hundred gentlemen in velvet coats formed her guard of honour, followed by a hundred others in the royal livery of fine red cloth, faced with black velvet. Thus was she escorted to the palace of Whitehall, and there closely guarded. For three weeks her fate was discussed in the council, while she remained in torturing doubt of the result. There was every cowardly temptation for the traitors to criminate her in order to shield themselves, or recommend themselves to mercy. Wyatt did so, but, finding it of no avail to mitigate his sentence, confessed on the scaffold the falsity of his charges. The other prisoners, for the most part, acted with more honour than could have been anticipated. No positive evidence could be found against her, and the Queen, against the urgent advice of her chief statesman, firmly opposed the immolation of her sister on insufficient proof. But Queen Mary was to attend a meeting of Parliament at Oxford. She had to dispose of Elizabeth in some safe way and so she ordered her to the tower. This command was received with natural dismay. Elizabeth wrote an admirable letter to the Queen, pleading against her supposed fate in strong, simple language, uttered with too much heartfelt anxiety to admit of her usual pedantic and finical amplification. She took care to occupy so much time in writing it that the tide of the Thames ebbed, and the barge that was to convey her 
could not pass the London Bridge. The next tide was at midnight, and it was not thought safe to attempt her removal at an hour when her friends might take advantage of the darkness to rescue her. On the morrow she was put aboard the boat. The tide not being fully up, she was nearly wrecked in the stream while passing the bridge. She reached the tower in a rainstorm, angrily dashed away an offered cloak, resisted the attempt to lead her through what was called the traitor's gate, and when she landed, exclaimed, Here lands as true a subject, being prisoner, as ever landed at these stairs. Before thee, O God, I speak it, having no other friend but thee alone. She seated herself on a stone in the pelting rain, and when urged not to endanger her health thus, she replied, Better sit here than in a worse place. She rebuked some of her attendants for weeping, and was conducted into her prison. The high-born captive remained two months in the tower. She and her servants were subjected to the severest examination by the council, one member of her household being even put to torture to extract some evidence against her. It would appear that she had held some cautious conference with accomplices of the rebellion, perhaps that she might ascertain the designs of Jane Grey's party, who were engaged in the affair, professedly to favour Elizabeth. But Mary was too conscientious and faithful to the tender ties of blood to permit her prisoner's murder without good proof of treasonable intent. Moreover, at one of the examinations, Lord Arundel, one of her most influential and furious opposers, was suddenly convinced of the injustice done her. He nobly and impulsively expressed his sympathy, and Elizabeth, with her usual cunning and something of her subsequent coquetry, began to flatter him in such a way that he warmly espoused her cause, and henceforth began to entertain hopes that he might win her hand for himself or for his son. Still she suffered much rigorous usage. English prayers and Protestant forms were forbidden to her and her ladies, two of whom were taken away on account of their resistance to this tyranny. Her place of close confinement is said to have been directly beneath the alarm-bell of the castle, so that her keepers might ring it readily to arouse the city in case of any attempt to deliver the princess. The handsome Courtney, for whom it is still supposed she had some liking, was incarcerated near her, probably to tempt them to some communication which might be used against them. But her conduct is represented by her fellow prisoners as calm and brave. Whether it was to win favour or not, they spoke of her sweet words and sweeter deeds in consoling them. By degrees her privileges were increased. She bribed the Chamberlain to remit his officious interference with the provisions of her table by giving him a bountiful portion of them. Her health began to fail, and she was allowed to walk through a splendid suit of apartments known as the Queen's Lodgings, the tower being sometimes used as a refuge for royalty as well as a prison. In these walks she was accompanied by a guard, and the windows were blinded that she might not look out. 
but her need of air procured her the liberty of a small garden within the walls. While pacing there, the captives were not permitted to gaze at her from their windows, lest some mutual understanding or plot might be contrived. Her constraint was relieved, however, by the winning acts of several children of the officers. These incidents are memorably beautiful. One infant girl brought her some little keys while she was in the garden, and told her that she need not stay there but might unlock the gates. Another child, a boy of four years, daily offered her flowers, and received trifling presents in return. This caused suspicion in the prying magnates of the place, who questioned the child but could neither frighten nor coax him into any confession that he was employed to carry messages to and from the princess. He pitifully said to her through the keyhole of her door, Mistress, I can bring you no more flowers now. She was delighted with these little angels of consolation, and ever after seemed pleased with children for their sake. Among the many distinguished persons under arrest in the tower was Lord Robert Dudley, committed for aiding his father, Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, in the plot previous to the last-mentioned one. He was born in the same hour with Elizabeth, had been a playfellow with her in her childhood, and was afterwards her chief favourite, and made by her the Earl of Leicester. He was on service abroad after leaving the tower, and until her accession to the throne, when he was immediately promoted and showered with favours. It is thought that he held a correspondence with her at the time of their imprisonment, by means of the boy who brought the flowers, inasmuch as they had no other opportunity of intercourse for a long time. Some hypothesis is apparently needed to explain her sudden partiality to one who had long opposed her interests but their early companionship, his qualities, and her policy or susceptibility may account for it all. End of section 23